Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. And welcome to Politics War Room with James Carville and I'm Al Hunt. This week, two terrific guests, Georgia-based legal expert, Professor Morgan Cloud and the distinguished Princeton University history professor, Sean Wilentz. Now remember, we love taking your questions. So write in to politicswarroom at gmail.com or send a tweet to at Plinicon for next week's show. We'll get to as many as we can, but don't forget to tell us where you're from. And please check out the links to this week's sponsors, Lomi and ExpressVPN, in our show notes. We thank you for supporting these sponsors. It really helps make this podcast happen. And please tell your friends about us and remind them to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. James, you know, for months, longer than that, actually, I have been predicting a Trump slide. A couple weeks ago, I got a little wobbly. Uh, and and started to wonder as the polls never changed. I'm back now. Uh, I'm back now thinking that he is in for a very rough time and he's got to start this slide. Uh, it's like kind of a pool ball careening all around the pool table. Uh, four different uh, indictments. Uh, every day he's got to be thinking about, is it Mar-a-Lago? Is it Fulton County? Is it Jack Smith in Washington or even Manhattan? It just has to weigh on him terribly. He's got different lawyers, some of them of varying degrees of competence. Uh, And I just think it's a terrible, uh, even for a Trump, psychologically, this is terribly, terribly difficult and facing the prospect conceivably even of jail. Uh, The only thing that gives me pause, James, is that I wish I could think of a somebody who could really seriously challenge him for the nomination. I think it will occur, but I got to say, uh, DeSantis is now gone. You look at that field and you're not very competent. I, I, I'd make one more point, which is we ought to take odds. Who's going to be the first rat to jump off the ship? Because trust me, they're going to start jumping. Uh, and I think the Georgia case actually is makes it easier for Jack Smith to start negotiating with Mark Meadows or Rudy Giuliani and say, hey, guys, you better play ball with me. We may, If you do, we may try to help you in Georgia because otherwise you may be dead down there. And I think that Meadows is, my guess is he's there. Rudy at some point will get there. And don't rule out even people crazies like Jeff Clark. So I, I, I don't I don't agree that Trump is the inevitable nominee, much less the next president. So let's make book here. Beat the book. So you say Trump won't be the nominee. So right now I'm going to set the odds that are two to one against you. That's just an arbitrary number. And let's see in a week or two the odds better, you know, or, or worse. And that, that's, that's the way it, it, it works. It, it, it's a kind of moving target. So I, I'm just arbitrarily going to say two to one, 
Trump is the nominee. You're taking the dog. Yep. Let's see how the odds move. Uh, that 19. Interrupt for a brief second. I would have said three weeks ago it would have been three to one. Okay, I agree. And it, it might be one to one next week. I just, we just, we're just making an arbitrary number. We're just making shit up, but that's the best you can do. Uh, uh, which which case goes first? Is it is it the Washington case, the Miami case, the Fulton case? Apparently, the Manhattan has decided that it's going to defer. All right, there are 19 indicted people in Fulton County. When they go to trial, how many, what's the over-under of how many actually go to trial and no plea? I'm making an arbitrary number at 13. I'll make it tough. I'll make it 12 and a half. So you got to have a winner. And if we can revisit that number as it goes on. But right now, you could, you, the un, the, uh, if it's under 12, if it's 12 or under you, and you take the under, you win. If it's 13 or more and you take the over, you win. Okay. I've got this arbitrary line. I'll take the over. You're taking the over, right? I'm putting the line at 50-50 that Mark Meadows flips. Oh, I'll take the um, higher. Flip or not flip? 50-50. Flip. I'm I'm, I'm flipping. You're in the Mark Meadows flips. Yeah, and James, let me get back. I'm not totally sure Manhattan will go first. I mean, it certainly looks that way now. Well, Uh, no, they say they're not. Bragg well, has said he's kind of indicated that he would defer to the federal prosecution. Well, that's that's good news. I don't want that right. case first. I don't think I don't think it will. I'm not putting it on the board right now. All right, two more. If we pick right, one, what, yes, I would pick I would pick Mar-a-Lago. Okay, you take Mar-a-Lago first over Fulton or January six. Okay, this is and we can change. All right, this one will get a result on. I say it's oh. Uh, Two to one that Trump does not have his press conference with his bombshell 100-page report proving that the election was stolen from him on Monday. I think that goes away at Infrastructure Week in Mexico paying for the wall. You think you'll have it? I'm with you. You're with me. All right. On Wednesday, I'm putting it at 50-50 that Trump schedules his arraignment at about the time that the debate starts in Milwaukee. That's interesting because it is a, an evening, a primetime debate, right? It's a primetime debate. He, the, the, the Fulton County Sheriff said the jail is open 24 hours a day. Okay. People can come anytime they want and surrender. James, that's an ingenious proposition. And I, and I, would, <laughs> I would not be surprised if you are right. I, I, I don't know, but we're going to look. I, I, you know, I'm kind of thinking that he'll, his plane, he's going to say his plane will be in range 15 minutes before it starts. So they'll uh, all be there watching the plane and the motorcade will go downtown Atlanta. If that happens, I will say it's 80-20. CNN has a, has a split screen. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, my God. Maybe it's 95 <laughs> <laughs> it's, it, it's remember when it was Clinton was given the State of the Union during the OJ verdict okay. or something, right. Right. and had to split screen. So, uh, yeah, I I I I, I think he's going going to pull Mark. Mark, we were just guessing. We could all be wrong. We can revisit this. We can change the odds. And I invite our listeners to, to in the back of your mind, pick a side. 
Yeah. Pick a side here because we got we got we got there's a lot of gambling going on in this house and football season hasn't even started yet. <laughs> James, I'll give you the hardest one of all. Give me who has the best odds to be the nominee if it's not Trump. I, I'm I'm still going with JD Vance. And, and because if it's not Trump, that means there was a collapse. A yeah. legal collapse. Or, 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 you know, I, I'd, I'd still don't discount the fact that there, there's some plea that comes up. I mean, he's just, you never can say that can't happen. And he, of course, not, nothing to indicate that he plea. You know, he said he, he's adamant that he's not, uh, you know, the, the hour is late and eternity is near. And when they start flipping on him, uh, he, he could panic, but you know we'll see. Uh, you know of the current field, boy, it's hard to see any of these guys. It really is. But and uh, you know the donors are waiting on Glenn Youngkin, and you know there's a lot. Of, let me tell you, there's a lot of buzz that's circling this right now. Glenn Youngkin is going to look like a much less formidable player or hitter in the major leagues than he does uh, in AAA. Well, DeSantis is the kind yes. of living proof of that, you know. And you, you, hey, by the way, you see where Chris Christie's moved ahead of DeSantis in New Hampshire polling? Yeah, it's, it's, I saw it. It's interesting. It's one poll and he's one point up on DeSantis. But but I could see Christie doing, you know, pretty well because I think you, you correct me if I'm wrong, you know, but I do. I, th I think other people can vote in a Republican primary. It's not a closed primary. Well, yeah, you can re-register that day. Independents can vote in either one. It's a, uh, a, you know, it was uh, it was why John McCain won so big uh, back in 2000. Uh, it's a it's it's why Joe Biden put South Carolina ahead of New Hampshire. That's the precise yeah, and, reason. And, and, and I think they made a mistake, but I mean, so do you. And we'll go back. But I mean, Sununu's got uh, he's a popular guy. He was elected and reelected up there. His dad was elected. His brother was senator. I mean, I suspect there's a lot of Sununu Republicans and Sununu independents. You know, in a place like New Hampshire, but uh, we'll see. It's, but but I, that, the, the thing is, it, it's really interesting. It's fascinating. Yeah, I don't think Chris Christie has any chance to be the Republican nominee, but I think he's, A, going to have, he, he could be a force, a factor in this, and he's going to have a lot of fun. I mean, you know, he's, he, he's trying to get, get back. Uh, he has a lot of dues to make up for, and uh, I think he's I think he's doing it. And, you know, the thing you got to give him is he's a skilled debater. He doesn't, if you make a mistake, he's going to, he's going to seize it. And, and, he, and he, you know, and he was a skilled communicator when he was governor. He's obviously a skilled politician. He won twice in, you know, one of the bluest states in the country. And, uh, you know, as governor, he did, did a lot with the Democratic legislature. He, he He's skilled. He's not. He's not going to give him any quarter. Can he win? No. Yeah, I I agree. His biggest mistake last time, as if as an affected debater, was turning on Marco Rubio instead of Donald Trump. But right. he is a very skilled debater. Right. Right. I. But boy, did he turn on Rubio? Whew. You've heard James's odds. There you it know, is. Or you can check it. You can you know actually uh, look on our show notes. And we want you to weigh in, and at some point we'll tabulate them and see where we stand. Good idea. We like we, we like listener participation on this show.
Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. Hey, James, our guest is one of America's most eminent historians, Sean Wilentz of Princeton University. Sean, first, welcome back. It is a real pleasure always to have you. Uh, it's a pleasure, James. Great to see you again. Right. You have said, I believe, that America may be more divided than any time since the Civil War. Sure. That's really pretty stunning, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it really is. It's not only that we're divided, but our politics are in a very, very bizarre, strange place. I mean, it's nothing like it before, not even the Civil War when you have a, a a political party that's essentially become a a, a cult um there have been popular presidents before but not within a party but not like this um it's beyond that it's not just a cult it's a criminal cult this is we're, we're in we're in un, uncharted territory but yes we are divided deeply deeply you know we we have had as you so well know a number of reasonably powerful demagogues in American politics. In more recent history, Joe McCarthy, George Wallace. But unlike the others, Trump not only made it to the White House, but he dominates his party. It's a cult, as you said. And whatever happens to Trump, I think there's a case that Trumpism may well endure. Uh, how do you explain that? And is there any historical analogy? There really isn't. I mean, as you say, Al, um, you know, Huey Long, I suppose, came as close as, as, as we can imagine. But, you know, he got shot, but he wouldn't have made it anyway. Um, as much as a, as a Louisianan, James, you know, you'll understand that, you know, it was a it was it was a it was a close call in many ways. Um, but no, I mean, there's no there's there. Will Trump ism survive Trump? Maybe. I mean, the, the definition of a cult is that it's attached to one person, right? And and it's going to be very hard for anybody else to re replicate what Trump has done. Will, however, the discontent, the seething craziness that we're seeing that pervades his movement, will that persist? Absolutely. I mean, we we've we've gotten beyond um, you know where wherever normal politics was, and I don't think we're going to be able to fix it as easily as some people would like to. I mean, much as I would like to. And that's for a lot of reasons. It's not just the, 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 the Republican Party has basically ceased to exist as we knew it. Um, the Republican Party has become this cult, but it's also that the, the, the structure of media, the structure of how everything is understood, the structure of truth in America. I mean, I, I'm very pessimistic about that aspect of Trumpism, um, you know, fading away. Yeah, I was going to say, how big a role does media, but particularly social media, uh, yeah play in these divisions. I know uh, several former Watergate prosecutors have said with today's social media and Fox, uh, I don't think we could have uh, ever uh, uh, did what we uh, do, what we did, did what we did to Richard Nixon. I, I agree with that. Um, I mean, and look what Richard Nixon did in comparison to what Trump has done. I mean, it yeah. was peanuts compared to what, you know, what's what's happened lately. Look, social media is terrible. There are, as we speak, there are billions of messages going around that crazy people inciting other crazy people, not all of them from Donald Trump. Um, you know, this was nothing that we this is this is a genie out of the bottle. 
So I don't know how you correct for that. And then, of course, there's Murdoch and, and, and Fox, and, and that's very, very powerful. So, yes, these are all the reasons why I think it's going to be self-sustaining. Um, not necessarily attached to, you know, it, it won't be Trump. I don't think Trump's going to be able to hand this on to, say, Don Jr. or something. But the 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 structure of politics as we knew it, I think, is very, very different. Yeah. James. So, so Prof, to... You know, generally, people, some people say, well, history is history. You know, if you know it's 1066, it's 1588, it's 1876, it's right. 1860, it's 1941. And we'll finalize anything but that. Right. History itself has become really enmeshed in the culture wars. Oh, yeah. Big time. And, and do you see that with your students at Princeton or fellow faculty members where, you know, it's what's real, what's history? <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, everybody's noticed it. You can't help notice it. Um, the students come in with a lot more of the, you know, sort of 16, 19-ish stuff on their brains as what they want to learn and what they want to emulate and all of that. Um, with with the professionals, it's it's gone beyond any particular interpretation, James. It's the very idea of history itself. Right. Um, um, the head of the, or a past recent head of the American Historical Association wrote a piece in which he was quietly, very, very gently chiding his colleagues for indulging us in what's called presentism. Presentism means basically judging the past on the basis of the standards of the present. Okay. Um, so the, the people in 1776 didn't measure. Well, that's the guy at Wisconsin, the wasn't it? Huh? I think it was yeah, 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 Wisconsin. Wisconsin. Exactly. Was exactly. How they thought of. Dude, yeah, mean, he's a, and he's an Africanist. He's an Africa. He studies Africa. So he wrote this very mild thing, saying, "You know, we shouldn't be presentists," which is actually the definition of what a historian does. Right? A historian is someone who can suspend your present standards and understand the past on its own terms. Right? That's what a historian does. When he published that, he was he was reamed. He was beaten up. He was called everything, you know, anything but a child of God. He was really, really destroyed for this. Now, destroyed, I mean, he, he's come back. He'll be okay. He's got oh, tenure. What's tenure for? Nevertheless, that reaction of historians repudiating what is the basis of history, that is very alarming to me, beyond any particular interpretation, beyond any, you know, politics and all of that, because it opens up history to, you know, anything goes. In fact, the historical profession was founded precisely to overcome that way of doing things, precisely to overcome the idea that you judge people on the basis of your own standards rather than the standards of the time. Now, there is a possibility you can you can do that. You can use history in order to pardon all kinds of terrible things, you know, just to say, well, you know, slavery, well, slavery, people kind of thought that way back then. So it wasn't a big deal. Well, no, that's not true. Um, you can't do it that way. But you have to understand how people dealt with slavery, how people understood slavery from all different points of view, including that of the slaves, um, you know, by the standards of how they lived that experience rather than the way we wanted them to live it the way that we would have done it. So let me, when I was an undergraduate of Hong Kong a long, long time ago, if you took engineering or you, you, you've gone to law school or pre or whatever it was, you had a survey course. Everybody to take it. It was right. American history from colonialism to 1860 and then right. to the present. Right. And I think it was kind of a standard textbook, a textbook. Yeah. And wherever you went, you went to Ohio State or you went to Williams. Yeah, y'all kind of 
drank from the same vat and fresh. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Is there a standard like survey history textbook that's being taught in universities around the country? Is it or is it a subject to fight too? Some, but not as much as as, as in the old days. Um, also, the whole textbook question has become much more vexed, in part because textbooks are no longer. I mean, you know, people don't teach with textbooks anymore. I mean, that's gone out the window. Um, you know, you have because of the because of of of, of the web. I mean, you know, I, I suppose some people do. I, I'm not sure, but it's not. The idea that there's an agreed upon uh, concept of American history to be taught to Americans, young American students, college students, that we can more or less agree on, even though we can disagree about this, that and the other, nevertheless, a core, that's much, much more difficult to, to identify, you know. Um, I, 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 there are textbooks out there that do that. Um, I have friends who have written them. They're, they're perfectly good. Um, but we're tending in a very much more fractured kind of kind of system um a much more fractured kind of reality and understanding the american past um and if anything goes well then what you what do you need a textbook for anyway you can just make it up on your own and just you know go with that well i think napoleon said what is history but agreed upon fable or something yeah right right right, right. Or Voltaire said it's, it's it's a bag of tricks we play on the dead or something like that you know <laughs> um, um yeah i mean look that's all true you know we, we're fallible we're human beings you know but we but but human beings do the best we can and over the centuries you know a a, a what a canon has developed not of, of 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 the way that you understand history but of how you do it of how you go about doing it and that was that's precious you know to me that was a precious achievement that came out of the enlightenment that developed in the 19th century and it's being trashed and that's what most concerns me so I understand you write a book, and one of you, you're obviously a man of many historical passions, and you teach a course from, you know, up to the, but is the, the anti-slavery movement. Yeah. And what have you found out since you graduated from, from you got your PhD to now, what have you found out about the anti-slavery movement that, that really interests you or you think is unique and people don't really yeah. Enough. I mean, these days people forget that there was an anti-slavery movement until maybe, you know, the day before the 30th Amendment was ratified. I, I, I you know, people don't really understand that history. Right. Um, now, you know, when I was an undergraduate and when I was a graduate student, people talked about the, the, the anti-slavery movement beginning with William Lloyd Garrison in the 1830s and then Frederick Douglass in the 1840s and 1850s. And that's the story that we all got told. What I have learned most of all in, in, in doing the research for the book I'm working on now is that it, anti-slavery long precedes that. The history of anti-slavery began actually in the American colonies. The American colonies were the first, was the first place where you saw an actual political movement that was striving to get rid of slavery. It was in Massachusetts. It was in the, the North for the most part, although it eventually got as far south at least as, as Virginia. But the United States was the place where anti-slavery was born. In effect, anti-slavery politics was born. There had been lots of things beforehand. The Quakers in America had been doing it. But in the 1760s, 1770s, 1780s, something caught fire. And we owe, I think, I'm not, we, we owe our understanding of everything that's happened in American history around slavery and then civil rights, Jim Crow, to, to that, to that, to that moment, to that, to those, to those movements of the 18, in the 1760s, 70s and 80s. That's the biggest deal, is that it's old, and it was there from almost from the beginning of the nation. Indeed, America's founding was caught up 
in a struggle over slavery. You know, there's a, there's a common idea out there, and I, I, th- I suppose I shared it at some point, that the American founding was all about, you know, giving slaveholders their, um, their head, giving, you know, giving, giving way to the slaveholders, it was enshrining slavery in American constitutional law and elsewhere. That's not true. Um, what, what I've discovered is that it's not true. It's not as if anti-slavery was enshrined in the American Constitution, but there was a struggle. There's always been a struggle. The struggle was there from the very start. And we can't understand the, the making of the United States, the founding of the United States, unless we understand that there was a struggle over slavery going on even then. Um, and it was a slavery, and by the way, a struggle over slavery was also necessarily a struggle over race. Because, you know, one of the biggest arguments made on behalf of the slaveholders was that black people are inferior and so forth and so on. Um, that was being fought as well in the, in the 1770s and 80s, 80s, very early on. So the point is, I think, to understand American, that part of American history as a history of struggle, rather than to flatten it out and to say America was this or America was that. America never was anything. Americans are always fighting about everything. And they were fighting about slavery above all from the very start of the nation. You know, it wasn't true in the 17th century as much, but by the the time we get to the revolution, it's going. So before I turn it over to Al, I recall, if I think about history, what I learned is a lot of founders knew this was a problem. I mean, they they got what it, but they knew this was eventually going to bite us on the ass, to to put it in a kind of vernacular term. And one of the most interesting things, and if you could just give us 90 seconds on the Northwest Ordinance, because that was considered almost a, a, a constitutional statute in people's mind. And what Absolutely. brought that about? And just, yeah, because I think it's important to understand the history of the country. Yeah, yeah. No, it's an excellent point, James. The Northwest Ordinance is crucial. The Northwest Ordinance was passed in 1784 by the then Congress, the Confederation Congress, not in the Constitution. While the Constitutional Convention was meeting, actually, Congress passed the Northwest Ordinance. That was under um, Article Confederation. Yeah, correct. Okay. And, and it was, they were meeting in New York. The Congress then was meeting in New York. Now, there had been all kinds of questions of what are we going to do with the Western lands, the Western territories that we gained from Britain after the revolution? How are we going to organize them? What are we going to do with in 1784, there was a land ordinance that the Congress was organizing, a committee actually, with an abolitionist, um, an anti-slavery guy, and Thomas Jefferson. And they came out with a land ordinance that said that there would be no slavery in any Western territory after 1800. It failed by one vote. Can you imagine how American history would have been different if that had passed? In any case, it didn't pass. But the idea of free soil, that there should, that Congress had the power to make certain areas, territories under its own control, free of slavery, that had to be asserted, and that was asserted, and that was saved with the Northwest Ordinance. The Northwest Ordinance basically said that the territories north of the Ohio River um, that had not yet been organized, and there would eventually be several states, including the state of Ohio, that, that slavery would no longer be admitted there. There were already slaves there. It was a little bit complicated, but the slavery is going to be banned in Northwest Territory. Now, what did that mean? Well, it meant a lot. Above all, it meant that Congress could do this. Now, that's what you say, James. That was the Confederation Congress that did it. But one of the very first things that the U.S. Congress did under the Constitution was to ratify the Northwest Ordinance. So the Northwest Ordinance was a symbol that the federal government could do something to control the spread of slavery. It could do it by getting rid of the slave trade in 1808, but it could also control the territories. 
Now, that was going to be what the Civil War was all about in the end, right? You remember? It was all about the expansion of slavery and so forth. Right. Well, the Northwest Ordinance became the, 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 the beacon for anti-slavery politicians in particular, Lincoln, all the rest. The Northwest Ordinance stood, as, a, as, a, as I say, as a beacon for understanding that there was an anti-slavery possibility in, the, in American history and in, American, in an American government ratified by the Congress that the federal government could use, that those powers were there. And, um, but the ordinance was crucial in establishing that. I think there was more than 90 seconds, but, you know, you got to let you. Okay, Robert, so th th these things are like, are important for people to understand because you, you get to contact yeah. that it's just been a rotten country, it was born in, right. you know, uh, uh, what was his name, Willie Stog, man is born in sin and concede and corruption. He paid, you know, <laughs> yeah, right. That, that, right. That, right. That's the whole to the, the, the United to the grave. Yeah, right. Right. right, 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 right go go right. ahead, Albert. <laughs> you know, I was, when you talked a few moments ago, Sean, about, you know, the argument over presidentism, presentism, yeah. it, it, it's a personal story. 25, 30 years ago, I don't remember the exact date, I, uh, I was very uncomfortable with the concept of gay marriage. Uh -huh. And my friend Barney Frank gave me a rather stern lecture, as Barney <laughs> I bet he did. wanted to do. And I really appreciated his points, and, and I, I changed my view. I told one of my kids about this a couple of years ago, and they said, you really were a bigot. I mean, you were, and I, my only defense was, hey, I got there before Barack Obama did, okay? <laughs> but, but, but I do think in a very small way, it's illustrative. I mean, if you judge me, uh, you know, by right. the standards right. of today, uh, I suppose you could say I was a bigot, but that's, you know, we, we go through that all the time. I, I don't know your view. I, I, I was happy that Princeton took Wilson's name off uh, uh, the, the school because I don't like Wilson, but. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, wouldn't, I, I wouldn't take Teddy Roosevelt's name off uh, off a building. Right. Well, you know, I mean, the arrogance of posterity is great. You know, everybody looks down at, you know, their parents and everybody older because they were benighted. They were so stupid. Then, you know, I, I always warn my students, they say, watch out, because somebody's going to be writing about you 100 years from now. And exactly. I say, by the way, by the way, where'd you get that T-shirt? Did that T-shirt come from China? Who made that T-shirt? People are participating in evil things, even if they don't realize it. They're not right. bigoted. They just participate because the world is, is presented to them in that way. Um, I mean, the, the, the important thing to me is not that people have bad ideas. The important thing to me is that things change. You know, that's what matters. The story that's interesting about your story, Albert, is that there's a story about Barney and his convincing you. That is the struggle. That's the struggle we all have. That's the important point, not the fact that you believe something else. But, you know, if, if, if I was great standard by, you know, judged by the standards of what I believe when I was 12 years old, I'd be, in, you know, really, you know, <laughs> it would be really terrible. Exactly. You wrote an interesting piece in the New York Review of Books, reviewing a book on that, among other things, covered Timothy McVeigh. Right. And, and when you look at this, these right wing zealot movements, white nationalists, the it seems to me that both guns and race are sort of central elements in it, uh, and and uh, they've been around for a long time. But but if anything, they're magnified today. Yeah, they are. Um, well, the gun thing in particular. I mean, the race question, the struggle over race, goes back to the very beginning. Right. But guns is something else. I mean, you know, and, and this is something that has a, a, a sort of a middle long history and a very short, a recent history. I'll give you the recent history first, right? 
when we were, we will all remember a time when the um you know um the NR, the national rifle association was a was a group for you know hunters and sportsmen who were trying to have responsible gun ownership right Something happened in the 1970s, and it's part of everything that happened in the 70s and 80s in terms of the radicalization of the right wing, where the NRA and the gun manufacturing lobby turned into something very, very different. And it became a political movement, and it became a movement that was going to make, going to equate guns with freedom, you know, that guns were the definition of freedom. It wasn't just that you had a right to own guns. Guns were essential to your act as a citizen. And now we have, you know, the idea that you're supposed to bring guns everywhere and shoot people before they shoot you. That's that's very new, uh, and that that politicization it was not by accident. It happened. People p- planned this. It was part of you know. But uh, yeah, basically, it all begins with the Reagan coalition, the putting together the Reagan coalition. I think that that was where you found this stuff becoming all of a sudden politicized. And what it does is it affects questions like race in heavy ways, right? Because then all of a sudden. Um, um, you know, you, you, you've, you've, you've got this interlocking idea of white supremacy and violence. Violence. Now, I'm not trying to say there weren't guns before. You know, remember back in the 60s, there was, you know, when the Black Panthers showed up with guns and Ronald Reagan got upset and he didn't want to have gun control. That was Ronald Reagan and gun right. control. Right. But, but, but so it, it, there's something, there's something beforehand. What I'm talking about is a, is a, is a particular history, though, of the politicization of this stuff, um, that got way out of hand. Um, and in, in this piece you wrote, uh, you're talking about Al very nicely. Thank you. Um, it's about Jeff Tubin's book about McVeigh. Um, you can, you can see it. You can see what happened in the nineties with people like Pat Buchanan and people like Rush Limbaugh. Um, you know, with, with, with talking exactly this way that there's a conspiracy out there to take your guns from you. It's an unholy conspiracy and we have to stop them. You know, the new world order is coming and they're coming for your guns, just like the British came after the guns of the revolutionaries, blah, blah, blah. That became a kind of politics, but it was a politics that was essentially based on violence. It, they, didn't, they didn't necessarily have to preach violence, but violence was there. And, um, you know, that's very recent in American history. Race is forever, but this gun thing, it's different. Right. James? So, so Prof. go. this is something I noticed. Is you, you you take something that was actually true, and you know and I'll give you an example. I am sure that there were black who people slaves who learned the art of being a craft of being a black. <laughs> that when they, when the slavery was over, they made a buck or two somewhere down. Right, I, right. I can't do that for a fact, but that seems reasonable. Of course, now, is that the most important thing to know? Is it the most important thing to know the single most valuable commodity in the United States in 1860 were human beings? Exactly, <laughs> it was more than all the man. Yeah. Uh, I mean, in history, a lot in history, education, a lot of what you teach, what you, what you choose to. There are a million facts about slavery that, but the overwhelming facts of them are gut wrenchingly horrible and disgusting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, yeah. I mean, I think a lot of history is about what you emphasize and what you de-emphasize, right? And then that's 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 what historical interpretation is all about. Um, but the idea that somehow, you know, it all worked out okay for the slaves because they could later leverage the skills that they were taught as slaves later on. I mean, that assumes emancipation, which is really the, the heart of that story. But you know, it's not about this. About not about slavery. It's about emancipation. That's what made that possible. Um, Our first student, Senator Blumenthal, pointed out to me. 
that yeah. you know the principal crop in uh, before the, the Civil War in the Carolinas was rice. No white uh, in, in South Carolina grew yeah. rice. It, yeah, that, yeah, that yeah. was Carolina expertise that was bought from the slaves. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> it's as if white people were knew everything and the slaves knew nothing. I and mean, it was the other way around. Um, right. um, yeah, but um, you know. It, it's true, but you know, there's a difference between being taught a trade, a skill. Um, I'm, I'm just writing about a man named Gabriel who started the a rebellion in Virginia in in 1800. He was a trained blacksmith. He had a real craft. He was, but he was also owned by somebody else who claimed to own him. Right. That made it rather different. Your skill kind of went by the side when you were a matter when it was a matter of property. Right. Well, I I, I, I just I, I love interviewing you. I love when you come on our show. Or I, it's great. Just, Thank you so good. So much fun. Thank I, you. I want everybody out there to tell your friends, if if if, if they haven't, to just go back and listen to Sean Lentz for the last half hour. Because think of how much those kids at Princeton have to pay for this wisdom. So, uh, <laughs> anyway, uh, we we are great believers in free speech, and that's how we got Sean Lentz. All uh, right. So, Sean, thank you so much. Lunch. <laughs> huh? I said, I'm going to go get some red beans and rice. And thank West Africa for your lunch, man. That's, that's, that's uh, what, yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yes, in sir. fact, New Orleans is a perfect example of how, you know, you know, if white people think that, that, that it all came from them, just visit New Orleans, Louisiana sometime and you realize that it's a lot more complicated than that. Right. So, uh, You've got a fabulous guest. Uh, have, have a great time this semester and we're going to have you back, okay? I can't wait, you guys. It's the best. It's the best podcast I know of. And it's the one that my friends like the best as well as me. So thank you for having me. Oh, wow, wow James. We are I'm, in high cotton. I'm, I'm walking on air. I'm on. I'm, I'm, oh, my God. <laughs> yeah, very, I know it's true. It's true. I just, in fact, I just got a, I just got a note yesterday saying you should tell Carville this. You should tell Hunt this, blah, blah, blah. You know, uh, they, they listen. They're interested. They're into it. So congratulations to you guys. And thanks. You have, thank you for having me on. Thank, thank you, Sean. We'll have you back. We appreciate thank it. Thank you. My pleasure. Morgan Cloud has been our go-to person on this Georgia case, which this past week saw Donald Trump and 18 co-conspirators indicted on a RICO charge uh, there for trying to overturn uh, the Georgia election. Morgan is a distinguished Atlanta lawyer. He knows the legal and the political implications of all this. First, Morgan, these defendants, leading with Trump, have been indicted under your state RICO statute. statute. It was originally designed to go after organized crime on the federal level. Explain the Georgia statute, how it differs from the federal RICO statute, and why this is uh, seems to be appropriate in this case. The Georgia statute it's, has struck me all along, including from our our first conversation about this more than a year ago, uh, is perfectly suited for the actions that are identified in this indictment for being used to, to prosecute those actions. And that is because the, the Georgia statute, like all RICO statutes, does not focus on individual crimes committed by one person by trying to catch the guy who shot someone dead in Fifth Avenue. Not, not trying to do that. 
What the RICO statutes, the racketeering statutes are designed to do is to identify a group that's engaging in ongoing activities for, in this case, a common purpose. And the common purpose identified in this indictment is overturning the 2020 presidential election. And this allows the prosecutor to bring together various people, several people who've done different things, not necessarily done them all together, not necessarily agreed with everyone or even know everyone there, but who've done uh, related activities for a related purpose over an extended period of time. And, and that alone highlights the relevance of the racketeering statute to these allegations. One more thing that we talked about once before, at least, is that in many ways, the Georgia statute uh, reaches conduct that's alleged in these indictments that would not be a racketeering crime under federal law. And the most obvious one is making false statements or submitting false writings and documents. Um, those are, you know, false statements and false writings uh, being submitted to government agents within the jurisdiction of their department, like the Secretary of State or the governor or the Georgia legislature. Those are felonies in Georgia. They're felonies under federal law, too, if the target is a federal agency. But the federal law doesn't reach these Georgia agencies. And under Georgia law, making these false statements or writings is a racketeering crime. It can be the basis for a racketeering prosecution. Under federal law, it's not. So making false statements even to Congress or to the vice president uh, would not be a racketeering crime under federal law. Well, this this case is so different and it is so diffuse, ranging from Trump trying to get the secretary of state to try to find what was it, 11,780 votes so they could steal the election <laughs> to um, um, uh, fake electors to breaking into voting machines to making false statements. The thing that in a way just makes me mad, maddest of all. Rudy Giuliani, what he did to those poor election workers, Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss, he wrecked their lives for a while. He lied about them. Uh, I hope those I hope they bankrupt Rudy Giuliani and <laughs> in addition to in addition to convicting me. But again, going back to what you said a minute ago, Morgan, uh, he doesn't have to convict everybody on everything. He can convict them on 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 one thing. Well, you know, racketeering requires proof beyond a reasonable doubt of at least two racketeering crimes. Okay, two. So okay. that has to happen. But someone, remember, this is pleaded not as a racketeering violation alone, but as a conspiracy, a racketeering conspiracy. And what the conspiracy statute allows is for uh, the prosecutor to bring together a range of activities and not simply activities that are crimes themselves. Racketeer, uh, prosecuting any kind of conspiracy allows uh, the, the government to show that there were overt acts committed in furtherance of the conspiracy. And those overt acts do not have to be crimes themselves. So if you were to really want to abuse your mind and carefully go line by line through this indictment, which I've been trying to do, and it's a grind, um, Allegation after allegation relating to phone calls or emails or 
events that happen outside of the physical uh, state of Georgia are referred to as overt acts in furtherance of the conspiracy. So uh, they don't have to be, there doesn't have to be a conviction. There are 161 acts uh, described in the first count, which is the racketeering count, but most of them are not defined as racketeering crimes, but are defined as overt acts in furtherance of the conspiracy. Yeah. The one thing with 19 defendants, Morgan, um, <laughs> it seems to me it's a couple, um, uh, a couple of facts. Whether all 19 go to trial or not, James and I are doing over-unders on that. But uh, <laughs> it's likely to create more delays because every defendant can file a motion for X, Y, or Z. And it, it just, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong. You can't, you know, you can't package them. And secondly, if it does go to trial, whether it's with 19 or with 14 or with 10 defendants, it's going to be a, it's going to be far more unwieldy. Well, and that's true of any large uh, conspiracy case. And that was true long before the RICO statute was enacted, the first one. Right. A big case with lots of defendants is complicated. There are cases that go on for six months, 18 months. It, titles can go on for a long time. Right. The, dif the difference in terms of time frame here is that, uh, as we all know, everybody has commented on the nature of the August 1st indictment by Jack Smith's team in, uh, based on activities similar to and including some that are listed in the Georgia indictment involving the 2020 election. These uh, charges in D.C., it's obvious that the, spe the special counsel's team wants to get this to trial quickly. That's why they only indicted formally so far one person, and they only have four counts as opposed to 41 charges here. Um, and I, you know, who knows? I don't know Mr. Smith or his, what his team talks about, but it seems clear that they're trying to get this tried in advance of the November election in 2024. Well, we Absolutely. all know why. Because the president, if Mr. Trump were for, to be reelected, he would have the a power to at least try to pardon himself. He could appoint an attorney general who could shut down all the proceedings against him if they were still pending in federal court. But there's no there's no authority like that concerning a state prosecution. Georgia is a separate sovereign from the United States government. And so Ms. even if Mr. Trump were to be reelected or a supporter of his were elected in November of 2024, when they took office the following January, they could not. They do not have constitutional authority to stop the Georgia prosecution. James Carville. Uh, Morgan, I'll correctly identified you as a distinguished Atlanta attorney. I think you're also a professor of law at the Emory Law School. Is that? I am. I am, sir. I, I just want to be sure to give you your academic credentials, too. Uh, so now that, you've just, now that you've discredited me. Right. I understand that if I hate the law professor. Okay, I understand. You'd have been much better being a distinguished attorney. In the Washington Post, as a, a, a columnist who is, a, I, I would describe Ruth Marcus as being well-liked and, and, and respected, basically wrote a column saying this whole Atlanta thing seems very, very compli complicated and complex. And the Jack Smith thing, I'm, I'm summarizing what Ruth said, but maybe not totally accurately. And the Jack Smith thing is a lot simpler and a lot cleaner. And maybe the Atlanta people need to get out of the way. 
and let the federal people handle this. Is this case that complicated? Is it going to be that hard for a jury to understand? Help us out a little bit here and see if we can help Ruth Marcus out a little bit. Maybe she's got a good point. I don't know. Uh, I'm going to start by saying I'm a a Ruth Marcus admirer. She's smart. She's thoughtful. uh, And she does. She didn't go to LSU, but she went to an OK law school. And so. That's right. Not LSU. So, um, uh, uh, or even, or Emory, but she's smart. She's a good columnist. Uh, but I would say her argument is not based upon legal analysis. Right. And it's not based upon constitutional analysis. It's based upon her personal preferences. And she's very, as you'd expect from Mike Marcus, he's very open about this. She says, I think that the most important interest here is in the federal system, and I trust federal prosecutors to do the best job. And that's, she ultimately says, that's what this, this column is about. And so there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, there are a lot of reasons that that people would reach that conclusion or those two conclusions. I certainly, uh, and you won't be surprised to hear this, James, I disagree completely. I think she's got it entirely wrong, and I'd be happy to explain why. Right. And and so I remember... You know, again, this was LSU Law School, but our professor would say state court actually protects you and is more involved in your life than federal court will ever be. If you're mugged or robbed or, or usually in a contractual dispute that you have, it, 90, 98 times out of 100, these are settled in state court. And we, we, we I, I told that Fulton County has pretty competent judges and prosecutors. Setting aside all that, I'm just, I'm going to go constitutional law professor on you here. So I apologize. Oh, yeah, but, please do. Um, and, and Ruth and Marcus admits, I mean, she doesn't admit, she just, she writes about it in her column how under our constitutional system, the state and the gov and the federal governments are separate sovereigns. And it's well known that states have their own legal interests and that they are under our federal scheme entitled and and allowed to and encouraged to protect their own interests. If you look at this indictment, it is based on Georgia law. And as we talked about a little bit earlier, not just Georgia law, but it based upon crimes defined by the sovereign state of Georgia that are not crimes under federal law. For example, um, soliciting a government official to violate his or her oath of office is a Georgia state crime. It's not a federal crime. Conspiring to do that is a Georgia crime, not a federal crime. So Georgia, along with the whole false statement analysis I gave earlier, Georgia has every one of these crimes, including violating the computers of Coffee County election officials or the election office, these are things that are protected and defined under Georgia law. And Georgia has an independent interest in that. And I, I just can't stress enough how this is one of the fundamental parts of our constitutional scheme. And, and I'm guessing, I don't know, I've never talked to her, but I'm guessing that when a few weeks ago, the voters of Ohio exercise their sovereign right to vote on issues of election law and effectively constitutional law in Ohio, he was, she probably supported, I'm guessing she supported that happening. This is just a variation of the same thing. Uh, all right. So, President, let, let's stay on this because uh, 
There is a motion that Morgan Meadows has filed, and th- th- there's under some color of law. They tried the same thing in New York, and it wasn't, but that if you're a government official and you're performing in, in your duty, you, 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 the proper jurisdiction is federal court. They're making a motion to remove this from state court to federal court. The, yes. the, the, the theory being that a jury from the Northern District of Georgia would be more favorably inclined to the defense than a jury from Fulton County. And more importantly, if they get this transferred to federal court, although Georgia law would still apply, and the, the same prosecutors, there would not be television in the courtroom, <laughs> of which the Trump people are deathly afraid of. How much merit do you think is in their motion to remove this from Georgia State Court to Northern District of, of Georgia? Well, in, in my in my particular opinion, these motions from Mr. Meadows, I think we'll see them from Mr. Clark. I know we'll see them from Mr. Trump. I uh, I imagine that the my instinct is that they should fail. Right. And I'll explain why. There's a federal statute that says when a federal official is prosecuted in a state court, if there's a colorable claim or defense under federal law, um, that it can be, it may be removed, the case may be removed to federal court. It's not mandatory, it may be. My view of this, to put it simply, and I think lots of people would agree with me, is that when the president of the United States calls the Secretary of State of Georgia and says, change the election results. When a uh, someone who works with the Justice Department engages in crimes, when I guess, I guess, no, I think about it, I don't know, Mr. Clark, I don't, but I'm sure Mr. Clark is a defendant in this case. You see, I don't, he is. I'm, he is. yeah. And Mr. Meadows, the fact that Mr. Meadows was chief of staff for the White House um, does not, give him any constitutional or statutory basis for trying to change the elections in the state. So I think ultimately the courts, and even if it's a Trump appointee on the district court or uh, on the 11th Circuit, I think they should, I hope they will, rule that these kinds of actions alleged in the indictment don't fall within the statutory or constitutional duties assigned to the president or members of the Justice Department, or the chief of staff of the White House, and therefore removal would fail. Right. Um, we'll see. <laughs> you know, again, I don't know that this has ever happened with a former president, and so we'll see. But I mean, there's an argument, and I would say one other thing that the reason the New York case was really easy because uh, although Mr. Trump said, "Well, I continued making these payments after I was president." And therefore, they were part of my official duties. It was very easy for the court to say, no, 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 no. First of all, a lot of those happened before you were president. And the stuff that happened when you were president had nothing to do with being president. It's not the title of your office that entitles you to remand. It's the title of your office plus actions that fall within the scope of your duties. And so, you know, if I were ruling, I would say this case should not be removed, but probably good for America. I won't be ruling. Right. And the other point is the president has no function in the Electoral College account and vote. So he could, he's That's not right. in, in his official capacity. That, you know, it, 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 and federal law couldn't be clearer. I mean, and, and obviously why we wouldn't want the president counting in charge of the election in which right. he's a candidate. And it'd be insane. 
I think Matt, Mr. Madison understood that. <laughs> <laughs> I do too. <laughs> All right, Albert, back to you. Uh, there's another reason they want to move it to federal court, uh, I think, uh, and that is, um, as I understand Georgia law, uh, if they're convicted, uh, they ain't going to get pardoned. They can't get pardoned federally, but it's very hard to get a pardon in Georgia. Is that basically right, uh, Morgan? Well, Georgia's got some very particular specific rules. Uh, first of all, a pardon cannot be granted by the chief executive. You know, the, the pardon can't be granted by the governor and only can be granted by the board of pardons and parole. Now, the board is appointed by the governor, but they have, they are removed from the direct political process and they have a pretty good history in Georgia of acting with some independence. But beyond that, Georgia law prescribes that uh, there cannot be preemptive pardons. Remember, Gerald Ford gave a preemptive pardon to Mr. Nixon. Mr. Nixon hadn't been charged with any crimes when President Ford uh, pardoned him. That cannot happen in Georgia. There cannot be a pardon until uh, there is a conviction. Um, and uh, the general consensus is after the sentence has been served. So the minimum, the mandatory minimum under the RICO statute in Georgia is five years. So in theory, the board could not pardon anyone convicted until they served five years. Something else that strikes me, it's different here. If this case were in Texas or Virginia or Florida, all the Republican office holders from the governor on down would be rallying around Trump. That's not the case in Georgia. Governor Kemp certainly is not doing that. Secretary of State Raffensperger, uh, the illegal call, I think, that Trump made to him as part of it. Former, um, uh, the former lieutenant governor, I think Jeff Duncan. I'm sure there are a bunch of right-wing Republicans like Marjorie Taylor Greene around, but there's not unanimity in Republican ranks on this, is there? George, it's really interesting. One of the theories of why Mr. Kemp victory margin uh, in the last gubernatorial election in 2022 was so much larger than any other statewide candidate was because of standing up to Mr. Trump's attempts to overturn the election. And the same is true of Mr. Raffensperger because he's an elected official too. And so there's a, there's certainly a part of the Georgia Republican party that has rallied around that, uh, that part of the party. That said, um, you know, Mr. <laughs> there are all sorts of Republican events happening now that Mr. Uh, some very important, like the state convention that Mr. Kemp has not attended because it's uh, so do the party in general is so dominated by, by the MAGA world. Yeah, right. Let me um, just you know, before I turn it back to James, it just you've done this before, but just tell us a little bit more about Fannie Willis and your thoughts about whether she's up to this very complicated task. I'd say the simple answer is yes. The, uh, uh, she has handled and created, helped create very path-breaking applications of the Georgia RICO statute. She's been lead prosecutor on complicated racketeering and other large defendant cases. Um, and we talked about before the Atlanta public school case from about 10 years ago right. when, when, uh, you know, she used the statute to convict school teachers and school administrators uh, of racketeering and the predicate crimes included, I mean, the, the case was built around 
altering standardized test scores. And so, I mean, if to anyone who thinks that the racketeering statutes only get applied to, say, the Gambino family, this was just a perfect example of how a creative, thoughtful, effective prosecutor could find ways to apply it to conduct that we wouldn't automatically normally think falls within the scope of the statute. I just yeah. want to emphasize the Georgia statute, the title is says racketeer influence and corrupt organization. That's the only place the word racketeer appears in the statute. The word gangster doesn't appear in the statute. The word mob doesn't appear in the statute. The RICO statutes generally, federal and certainly Georgia, uh, define racketeering crimes in terms of specific kinds of conduct. And it doesn't matter who does it. You don't have to be John Gotti. The statutes say any person who engages in, for example, the crime of false statements commits a crime. It doesn't matter if they're a, if they're a mobster or or, or a president. The statute doesn't distinguish, and, the, and neither does the federal statute. James? That's something that's a little bit technical. Has that statute been tested in federal court? Has somebody been convicted under it and brought a well, case of federal court says overly broad? Yeah. Why have people challenge a, a state statute? Is there any authority saying this statute is kosher? I don't know. Is is, is standard <laughs> constitutional test? <laughs> There is a lot of uh, state legislates, uh, state uh, litigation upholding the statute and right. in the federal courts, too. I mean, I, I think the RICO 50 years ago when the federal statute was passed and for some decades after that, there were constitutional uh, challenges to this, the federal statute on which the state statute faced over and over and over again. And generally, those failed. Generally, even the seemingly most controversial, maybe for defense lawyer, obnoxious parts of the statute have been upheld as constitutional. So I don't see the RICO statute as being uh, uh, an, uh, being declared unconstitutional. Okay, that doesn't mean there aren't there aren't countless other motions that we know are coming and other challenges to this indictment. I don't think that a, a racketeering unconstitutional statute claim will go anywhere if it's even filed. All right. So before I let you go, I can't tell you how much I've enjoyed this interview. And I, I just know that our listeners really enjoyed it. I want to just clean a potential misunderstanding. Let's assume that the federal courts removed the case from the Fulton County courts into the Northern District of Georgia. The case is tried in federal court, but my understanding is tried under Georgia law. Well, that's I mean, how can you remove a charges for Georgia violent crimes and, and then try it without having those crimes? So we've how got a law school hypothetical. Yeah. So he's found guilty <laughs> in federal court under Georgia law. That's not pardonable, is it? You know, I will tell you, I have not explored that. I mean, I think that's really interesting, but it would be a federal conviction. So I don't know. I mean, I'll be okay. I, I'm going to tell right. you, I haven't that's studied. Bad. I don't know. I'm stuck you know, this, the professor. Wow! <laughs> but okay. Morgan, wouldn't you wouldn't you suspect if it's a federal indict a federal conviction that there could be a federal pardon? Well, let me. I'll tell you what I I do know. I know that the history of the removal idea, both civil and criminal, is the idea that federal officials would not receive fair treatment in state courts. And that is, and you know, we all know from American history, there's some reason for that to be thought exactly. of from the get-go up until quite recently. 
And so uh, the idea is that if you're a federal official and you're performing federal task as part of your federal job, uh, you deserve a fair trial and you can only get that or be sure to get that in federal court. And so, I mean, to the extent that the justification for removal is this kind of protection for federal employees doing federal jobs, then one would expect that there will be a panoply of federal protections attached to that. I mean, that's what I would expect. This is not an area that I've studied much at all. Um, And so, you know, that wouldn't surprise me at all, Al. I I just, uh, you know, think... And for example, that will be part of the argument for removal, that there'll be a a more equitable jury panel for these defendants if we draw the jury pool from all of the Northern District, which I I think includes, for example, the counties that uh, make up Marjorie Taylor Greene's district. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, Then they could possibly get from uh, the Fulton County jury pool. Do I believe that? I'm not with the words fair. No, I don't believe that. But I think that's an argument that plays into the history of the statute. Well, this is I. James is absolutely right. This has been a fascinating conversation. It's a fascinating case. And who better to explain (laughs) it than Morgan Cloud? Uh, We're going to try to become his favorite podcast. We may not be there yet, but we're working on it hard. Morgan, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Prof. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Hey, now for the outrage of the week. English soccer, golf, boxing, all have seen a massive infusion of investment from Saudi Arabia, the Saudi's huge public investment fund. It's investing in these sports teams when it's not giving Jared Kushner a sweetheart deal, but I digress. Don't be surprised if America's favorite pastimes are next. Baseball, basketball, football. Did Danny Snyder think about that? This is what's called sports washing. The Saudis rehabilitating, trying to rehabilitate from the brutal murder and dismemberment with a saw of a Washington Post journalist and Saudi critic, Jamal Khashoggi, in Turkey some years ago. It was ordered by Mohammed bin Salman, the thuggish crown prince, and sadly, it seems to be working. But I would say to any fans attending a game with a team owned by the Saudis, ought to just simply carry a picture or a sign reading, Remember Khashoggi. Thank you. My outrage is going to take a little bit of time, but... Doing a little editorial discretion and think it's worth it. This appeared in a publication called Mississippi Today, which I think we can agree is a well-edited, reputable uh, site out of Mississippi. Uh, Jim Barksdale and Andy Laxon edited, and it they, they do really credible journalism. And this better comes than out, that, it's it's fabulous. Right, and this comes out of a place called Rankin County, Mississippi, which is mm-hmm. the fourth largest county in Mississippi. It's right east of Jackson. It's a classic kind of white flight. But it, it's not, it's a fairly educated and affluent place by Mississippi standards. I'm reading from the story, and I, I want to warn you, if you have young children and it's going over the thing, you might, you might want to turn the sound off because I'm, I'm, it's going to be difficult. It's going to be difficult, but it's important. 
On the evening of January 24th, a white neighbor informed McAlpin that several black males were living in the home of a white woman in the neighborhood. According to the criminal information, the neighbor claimed he had seen, quote, suspicious behavior, unquote, in the home. Editorial from me. What the fuck does that mean? McAlpin ordered Delman to investigate. Delman texted fellow members of the Goon Squad. Nicknamed because of the group's willingness to beat up people during arrest. Are y'all available for a mission, Deadman texted, warning the officers they might have to work easy, knocking on the men's door instead of kicking it down because the home was equipped with security cameras. Patrol Deputy Daniel Dyke, I hope I'm pronouncing his name, texted back with a GIF of a baby crying. Deadman texts, no bad mugshot, signaling that they should not beat the men on parts of their body that wouldn't show up in a mugshot, according to the criminal information. Officers crept onto the property, surrounded doors at the side and the back of the house, which lacked security cameras. Then, without a warrant, they knocked the doors down. The orders shouted orders, and two men complied with, according to criminal information. Deadman handcuffed him, and while seeing any evidence of a crime, began to tase him repeatedly. Opdyke kicked Parker in the ribs. Also, Deadman asked the men where their drugs were. When Parker and Jenkins replied they didn't have drugs, Deadman shot a bullet into Wall, the man they confessed. The officers accused the two men of taking advantage of the white woman who owned the home and, according to the criminal information, called them N-word, monkey, and boy. When the officers searched the home, Opdyke found a dildo in one of the bedrooms, which he gave to Deadman, who used it to slap the men. Deadman struck the sex toy in that mouth and turned Jenkins on his back, threatening to angrily rape him with it. Deadman only stopped when he noticed Jenkins had defecated on himself. Deadman then began to taunt the men, pouring milk, alcohol, and chocolate syrup onto their faces and into their mouths. He poured cooking grease on Parker's head, while Edward threw eggs at the men. Jenkins and Parker were forced to strip naked, shower, and change their clothes to destroy evidence of abuse. The two men were beaten with objects around the home, a piece of wood, a kitchen utensil, a metal sword, and tased repeatedly. McAlpin and Lieutenant Jeffrey Middleton, who supervised the goon squad, stole two rubber ball mats from the home and were about to take a Class A military uniform when they heard shots ring out according to the federal criminal information. The first shot was fired by Deadman into the yard. The second was fired by Elward, who meant to perform a mock execution, secretly moving a bullet from the chamber of a service pistol before dry firing into Jenkins' mouth. He tried to repeat the intimidation tactic, but this time the weapon fired, tearing a bullet through Jenkins' tongue and jaw. Without providing medical attention to Jenkins, who was bleeding on the floor, Dawson devised an elaborate cover-up. Middleton planted a throw-down gun he kept in his car at home, and Deadman took meth from a previous drug bust, which he neglected to enter into evidence and later submitted as a crime stating it belonged to Jenkins. The officer disposed of any of many shell occasions they could find through the men's clothes into the woods behind the house. They stole a hard drive from the home surveillance system and later threw it into a creek in Florence. McAlpin and Middleton, the two highest ranking officers, threatened to kill the other deputies if they said a word according to court records. It's a goddamn outrage that this happens in the United States in 2023. And this is right from Mississippi Today. Now, 
What happened is they've all pleaded they got 90 years. But there's something rotten in the Rankin County Sheriff's Office. And I, I suspect it goes a hell of a lot deeper than these six guys. And every time that I see a, a, a young black male and like our friend William Woodson and my friend Frederick Bell, or any number of friends, you know, friends of my my, my daughters that are, are black males, it just, just makes this is sickening. And it this is. needs to be exposed. I'm sorry. It really is. It really is. It was worth the time. All right, now for our questions from our really good listeners, smart listeners. Uh, Steve in Cambridge, Ohio, said, James, you stated last week the Republican Party is gone. Will there be another party to replace it after the cult dies, or is this it? Well, I refer everybody to, uh, in full disclosure, she's your wife, but Judy Woodruff on PBF did an interview with Judge J. Michael Ludick, who is you know, in, in the world of conservative jurors, jurists is at the very top of the pecking order and who is a dedicated, lifelong conservative Republican. Basically, he says it doesn't exist anymore. So I would defer to his judgment on this over mine. And I'm not sure that they can go back. I, I, they've taken the step into the Trump world. And, you know, the idea that, that there's a Howard Baker, every Dirksen, you know, Republican out there that will come back and rescue the party or bring it back. I, I'm, I'm really skeptical, Albert, that you, you've followed this as much as I do, if not more. Do you have any view on this? Well, uh, I appreciate and agree totally with your citation of Judy Woodruff's interview with Michael yeah, Ludig. I think the only way I think it has to start with a devastating election defeat. I think they have to suffer, you know, something approaching a 64. Maybe that's not possible, but they really have to lose big. Uh, and um, and I think I don't know that'll change, but that's the only way it's going to change. James. Yeah, and I, I don't I, I, it's pretty tough sledding to see having a 64 like defeat yeah. keep losing I, we got to acknowledge that but they they yeah. lose it up by a little bit not enough hey here's a question from shane in minneapolis this is a cosmic question the united states has been a global power defending democracy around the globe from anti-democratic forces albeit imperfectly we know it as global uh at, we oh, shit, let me let me go back again because i couldn't read this quickly all right start again Shane in Minneapolis says the United States has been a global power defending democracy around the globe from anti-democratic forces, albeit imperfectly. If America's democracy and its economic and military power cedes to autocratic and anti-democratic interests, how does democracy regain what is lost? What could restore democracy in the United States and would it fall around the world? Shane, that is really a good question. And I wish we could say that the threat of ceding to autocratic and anti-democratic interest uh, is a uh, is is not a real one. Unfortunately, it is. And uh, for whatever the faults of the United States, and they are considerable, for whatever the mistakes, and we clearly have made them, we still, when it comes to democracy and the rule of law, we still are a beacon around around the globe. And if it falters here, it's going to falter elsewhere. 
Uh, we referred to this before in the show. My wife, uh, Judy Woodruff, interviewed Michael Ludig uh, this week, the famed conservative jurist, who worries that it's going to take a long time, even if we don't elect Trump, for the United States to, to have the kind of respect and even reverence uh, from other countries. Uh, and I, I hope that's not the case. But if we elections go a certain way, uh, the threat is quite real. It's so real and so utterly frightening. So we had this, this utter catastrophic event in 2016 when Trump was election. Since that, we won the election in 2018. It was a help. Obviously, it was a help, albeit very close. We won in 2020, but not by a lot. It didn't do that well in the Congress. Okay, this is when the whole country and the whole idea was at stake. We held our own in 2022, which is kind of safe to interpret as a win, but that's about all you can say. We've had some good elections, but they're not huge elections. This is all being done in an economy that's functioning at three and a half percent, well, we're not losing a single American soldier or, or serviceman anywhere around the world. Can you imagine what happens? And it's a very real possibility that we have a economic depression. I, you know, I don't know. Shit, it's not impossible. If you look at the stuff that's going on in China and how entangled we are, if you look at the mischief that's going on in, in, in uh, around Russia and other places in the world, you could see us. And, and if we had a really bad event, and once you t tilt toward autocracy and away from the Constitution, I don't know if you ever get it back. And we have not, we have not at all dodged this bullet. We're surviving and we're not doing much better than that. And I'm serious. And I, I think that Judge Ludic, that you could see, I, I urge everybody to watch that interview. And, and the real thing that struck me is the real kind of fear he had in his face. I think this guy knows, he understands the right, he's been part of that, he, he, he gets it, he certainly knows the Constitution. I think this man is scared. And that's what came through to me. And I think we're a lot closer, I, I hate to say this, I like to be optimistic, but this is a, the, the fight for the Constitution is not at all one, and it's very treacherous, very dangerous, and it, it could go the other way. Oh, James, I fear, I fear you're right. I really do fear that. Nick in Billings, Montana. James, a lot, a lot of people want to question you or some stuff now. They say, right. given your recent comments about switching party, given his recent comments about switching party or challenging President Biden, isn't it time for even staunch Joe Manchin? He says apologists, I would say not apologists, but supporters like James Carville to give up the ghost and encourage donors to spend their money on Montana, Ohio, Texas, or even Florida Senate races. Yeah, I, I, I don't think they need a lot of encouragement from me. They, and, you know, Texas being an, another place that, that is really worthy of them race. For it, I, I, I say this, the choice with Senator Manchin is him or, or Marsha Blackman or Marjorie Taylor Greene. That's what you get. It's not, 
It's not Joe Manchin or Ed Markey or Patty Murray. All right. And, and it, 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 it's very problematical that he can win reelection as a Democrat in West Virginia. Very, very, very problematical. And, you know, if you look at all of the judges that have been confirmed by, by, by President Biden, which is absolutely critical, if you look at uh, the, uh, the major pieces of legislation, in all of those, Senator Manchin has been there. Can he be, is he difficult? Yes, he's in a difficult position. I, I would defend my defense of Joe Manchin pretty, pretty vigorously because it's be be careful, be careful what you wish for. And I think the idea of these people going to West Virginia and can't, you know. He has a bonus question where he says, whose presidential aspirations are more delusional, Joe Manchin or Mike Pence? Uh, that's easy, Nick. They're even. Uh, neither one of them has any chance to be the next president. My favorite quote of this cycle is by maybe the most moderate public Republican in America that yelled at Mike Pence, I'm glad they didn't hang you. That's the new definition of a moderate Republican. I'm glad they didn't hang you. Man, how far we've become. Well, I've always, Quaid, <laughs> Quaid in Richmond, Virginia, says MAGA is obsessed with the so-called culture war issues. It seems like those in leadership of the Republican Party don't really care about winning on those issues as much as they want to use them to distract from their disinterest in governing and other nefarious objectives. Agree or disagree? Uh, I think you got it slightly off, Quaid. Uh, I think they I think what those in leadership really care about are money and corporate power and uh, and, and, and those long standing Republican uh, uh, fat cats. Uh, and I think what they've done, they put together a coalition. It really effectively began with Reagan. And I think the cultural conservatives are a, creep, a key part of it. I think a number. I don't think Mitch McConnell cares about abortion. I don't think Donald Trump identifies with any of those cultural issues. But it becomes uh, a handy vehicle to use as part of a coalition and demagogue and get out voters. Uh, and uh, that's where they are. And frankly, it doesn't make a whole lot of difference whether they really care about it or not, because they do it and they do damage. So let me give you my interpretation. And you, you've observed Washington for a long time. This is what I think happened. And this is why I, I blame Republican leadership over the last, I don't know, 40 years, 50 years. They, they, if you walked outside of John Boehner's office or Mitch McConnell's office or anybody in, in, in Bob Dole's office, it, it, the, the, the car dealers would be out there, the, the beer distributors, the, 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 the real estate agents, the mortgage brokers, the, the defense contractors. And these people, and it gave the Democrats too, don't, don't get me wrong, but, but really what were the sort of core of the Republican Party was who Republican congressional leadership really had to pay to. And they kind of viewed the social conservatives, the cultural warriors, hey, we need these people because they provide the ground forces for us. They provide energy. No one is going to really go out and vote. So the car dealers get a, a, a better full plan tax or whatever it is they're looking for. And so they not only tolerated these people, they actually 
kind of cultivated the Jerry Falwells and these earlier Pat Robinsons, early coach awards. Now, because of that, it's bitten them on the ass. And I don't feel that sorry for you. I really don't. Because you were willing to take their energy and to let them go and, you know, do all of this stuff and, you know, kind of use that for voter turnout so you could, you know, help your corporate friends, which I'm you know, willing to concede Democrats are way in bed for some of these people too. But I, I, I think they made a deal with the devil and the devil is presenting his bill to them now. Yeah. Yeah, I think you're right. John in Nashville, Tennessee. What are the chances that Pence or Christie are holding back something truly new and damaging about Trump to be unleashed on a debate stage? For example, tapes of him ridiculing his supporters or plotting how to grift on his supporters. Uh, if they have this kind of inf information, is there any code that would keep them from doing it, revealing it? I, I, all right. Thank you for the question. You're a very well-meaning American but what can we find out about Trump that we don't already know that would cause somebody who is now a MAGA Republican to change their mind? Right. Everything we know, he steals their money all the time. Everything is a grift. They find out he was paying off porn stars. They don't give a shit. All right. We find out that that. Well, you know, who was inciting violence against the United States. They don't give a shit. We found out that he was keeping the, the, the very most treasured secrets of the nations in the most sloppy way imaginable. We don't know if he was selling them, but people were, were but, but, but at a minimum, he was sloppy with the secrets of the country. I, I, I called everybody every name that you can. He's done everything that he can to divide the country. They don't give a shit. And I, I appreciate your question. I don't think there's a, and I think the, the one thing that Trump said that stands the history of time, that I mean the time, the history of time, the test of time is I could shoot somebody in the middle of Fifth Avenue and they wouldn't give a shit. And I think he's right. I, 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 I just don't think there's anything else to find. You know, I used to think, well, you know, this guy paid for five abortions. If they had the receipts, and they had the video, the tape of the phone call, it would not matter. He lets people feel comfortable with their own hatred, and they, for that, they will they will forgive anything. Yeah. Anything. I, I am afraid you're absolutely right, uh, James. Yeah, no, uh, I question is from, is from <laughs> Judith in Chicago. Uh, it's a good question. Given Rand Paul's stranglehold on State Department appointments, and Tommy Tuberville's stranglehold on military appointments and promotions. I'm wondering, what would it take to change the Senate rules that allow a single senator to exercise such control? It absolutely undermines the orderly administration of necessary government staffing. Why haven't Schumer and Durbin implemented a rule change? This is a broader question, Judith, because, the, you know, the, the, the Senate was always supposed to be the saucer that cools the hot cup of tea, I guess, that comes over from the House. It was supposed to be the world's greatest deliberative body. It was an orderly process. You had these rules like a hold or like a blue slips or or the uh, or the filibuster rule because it would bring consensus. It would take a while, but it would take consensus. I'm sorry. That's not today's Senate. Today's Senate is a sham. And the idea that you're going to, that these rules are protecting 
uh, a, a valuable institution, I think you're outdated. I'm not sure what you change. I'm not sure if you can change. But I think things like hold and blue slips and even the filibuster ought to be revisited because that doesn't reflect the Senate of 2023. Yeah, I, I mean, you know a lot more about Senate customs, traditions, and rules than I do, but there's nothing that you said in my knowledge that I, I would dispute. At least. And, you know, you can only go back to the problem with the Republican Party is the quality of their voters. They just the, the number of Republicans that are shitty is a percent of the people that vote in their primaries that are downright shitty, rotten people is significantly higher than the number of Democrats that fill that bill. And you know what shitty, rotten people nominate? Shitty, rotten candidates. And thank you. This Tommy Tuberville is the ultimate manifestation of not of Republican voters. That's who that that that's who put him there, and that's who puts Marjorie Taylor Greene there. That's who puts Donald Trump there. Because again, I I, I have to be truthful here. A, a political party can't be much better than a majority of its adherents, and I think not all. You're not saying all. And I, one of the things I wish would happen. I'm gonna try to talk to my friends at Media Matters. When you have all these people that come up, like these six cops in, in, in Rankin County, go back and check their registration and see if they're Republicans or Democrats. All right. When you have all of this sort of inane racist stuff, see what they're registered. See what political party that they identify with and put it out. Yeah, I agree. You know, if I say that every that they're not you know, Republicans and, you know, Delbert Houseman and people, a lot of Republicans in Mississippi that are no way, shape or form reflected by these six goons. No, I'm not saying that at all, but I'm saying a lot of their voters, a lot of their voters. And boy, when you appeal to them and you, you bring them in and, and elevate them in, in your coalition, this is what you end up with. I'm sorry. You yeah, do. you know, you do. Tommy Tuberville doesn't even reside in Alabama. He really lives in Florida. Uh, and, uh, you know, the people of Alabama are responsible for electing that person. It's 65%. Um, our last question. You know, John in Sonoma is one of our regular writers, and I haven't taken a question from him for weeks, and I feel guilty. So, James, I'm going to go back to John and say, uh, John has, John, John, John's on a bit of a, tirade here. Why hasn't Trump been remanded? Hasn't he violated his condition of release by threatening witnesses? Quote, if you come after me, I'm coming after you. Why isn't he in prison, James? Because they don't want to do that. The, 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 the judges think, and I, I, let me say this, I agree with him. All right? If any, if you're right, if, if we are nation of laws, if, if, if I did this or you did that, and that judge told us not to do it, and we did. They might give us one warning, and then they throw us in jail. But what the leverage that the judge has, and, and I'm talking about the judge in the Washington D.C. case, Washington, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, she, the one thing she has is she can say, "You just keep threatening people. The way we're going to deal with this is we're going to move the trial date up." That's the big leverage they have over his big, corrupt, fat, yep, ass. Is is you won't shut up, I won't put you in jail, but it's, you're now 30 days closer to trial. 
that that's you know, I think that's happening. I really yeah. do. I, I agree with our with our friend from Sonoma. You're exactly right, and it's just a fact of life. But they don't want to do this, and I understand why they don't. And it's all right, John. We're not ignoring your very good questions, and right. we and we will not. But uh, I think James is is uh, right on the mark on this. Listen, keep please keep those questions coming in. And as I've said before, if we didn't get to them this week, we'll try to get to them next week because there are far more good questions that we're able to use uh, on this uh, on this segment. So keep them coming. Absolutely. Hey, thanks for listening to Politics War Room with James Carville, and I'm Al Hunt. Don't forget to send your questions for us by email to politicswarroom at gmail.com or tweet them for next week's show at Politicon. Following this episode, we'd really appreciate it if you check out the links to this week's sponsors, Lomi and ExpressVPN, and our episode show notes. We thank you for supporting them because when you do, it helps make this podcast happen. To keep up with us, subscribe to Politics War Room on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. You also can find other shows you might enjoy on the Politicon YouTube channel or when you search Politicon on your favorite podcast sites. Remember, please rate the show with a five-star review as we'll be back next week with another show as we continue our War Room planning.